Let's pray. A, I admit, Lord, that what I want to see happen, I cannot make happen. I admit that I can't raise the dead, I can't save sinners, I can't sanctify saints, I can't reconcile the alienated, I can't bring the wayward home. This is all your work, and I admit it happily. P, God, I pray you'd do it. I pray you'd save the lost at the South Campus the North Campus, downtown. I pray that you'd give eyes to the blind and ears to hear. Bring reconciliation where there's pain. Trust. T. I will trust you now. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened or dismayed. The Lord your God is with you now, John Piper. He's with his people sitting in these rooms, listening. They're hungry. They're ready. Give them my food. I will help you. I thank you as I act. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of the message for Martin Luther King weekend is From Bloodlines to Bloodline, and it has a double meaning, and both meanings are longings and prayers that I have for our church and for the evangelical church globally. The first meaning from bloodlines to bloodline is that God would so work to gather all of his people from all the ethnic bloodlines of the world into one glorious bloodline defined by the shedding of the blood of Jesus and purchased by Jesus and birthed by Jesus as he shed blood to make one new bloodline of a new humanity at the cross. That's the first meaning of the title. From many often hostile, often alienated, often suspicious bloodlines to one new bloodline, the blood of Jesus, creating a line of humans that live forever together in peace. The second meaning of the title is that I wrote a book last year called Bloodlines. Um, looks like this. I'll say something about it in a minute. And my prayer, as I try to unpack in this message some of the things in it, is that the book, Bloodlines, will lead people to the bloodline. From Bloodlines, the book, to the bloodline. And I would like you to pray to that end as well, that as people pick up the book and read the story of my sad early days, they would find hope in the new bloodline that began at the cross of Christ. So that's the meaning of the 
title of the sermon, one of the texts in the Bible that is perhaps the clearest, one of the clearest of all, defining the movement from bloodlines with all their separation and all their disrespect and dislike and suspicions and hostilities, moving from that to the bloodline is Ephesians 2, 11 to 16, which was just read to you. So I'm going to walk you through it for a few minutes to make sure we have the biblical foundations for what I'm saying in place, and then we're going to relate it to some of our present circumstances. The situation that Paul is addressing, as you can see very plainly, I think, is the centuries-long divide between the ethnic Jewish people and all the other ethnic groups in the world called Gentiles in the Bible, the nations. God had chosen a people for himself. Beginning with Abraham, he, he selects a people, the Jewish people. He focuses almost all of his saving, sanctifying, self-revealing uh, acts on that people for 2,000 years from Abraham to Jesus Christ. And then he tells, or at the beginning, he tells Abraham, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed in you. And he lets all those nations, according to Acts 16, 14, go, or 14, 16, go their own way. He let the nations go their own way and he focuses on Israel with a view that this nation, Jews, are going to be a blessing to the whole world. And the, divide, the dividing line between Jewish focus and the nations is, is very clear in this text as it is overcome. So let's read, starting in verses, verse 12. It says to the Gentiles, all the ethnic peoples outside Israel, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, that is, from the Messiah. They didn't even know there was a Messiah. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Strangers to the covenants of promise. Having no hope and without God in the world. That's what it means to be outside Israel. Pretty bleak. And then we cross a line between two eras from separation to reconciliation. And that line is drawn between verse 12 and 13. So let's read, let's cross the line now from that 2,000 years of separation and isolation and often alienation, verse 13, but now, and the now is Jesus has come, Jesus has lived, Jesus has died, kingdom is here, new era arriving, what will, what will it, its mark be? Now, but now, in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, you who were once 
far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, that's where I get the idea from bloodlines to bloodline. By the blood of Christ, all you ethnic groups out there that were so alienated, so foreign, without hope, without covenants, without promises, without Christ, in Christ, you're near, you're coming in, you're coming in through blood and only through blood, the blood of Jesus. How did he do that? How did he overcome the separation, alienation, hostility. How did he do that? Well, at the end of verse 13, the phrase, by the blood of Christ. But how? How does the shedding of the blood of the Son of God, the Christ, effect long-standing, deep hostilities, affect reconciliation between peoples like that. How does it happen? And he goes on to explain how, verses 15 and 16. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, picturing all those out there as a person and Judaism saved as a person, and he's going to make now one new man, so making peace, verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God, that's vertical reconciliation, in one body, that's horizontal reconciliation, through the cross. So there it is again, it's through the blood or by the blood at the end of verse 13, and through the cross there in verse 16, thereby killing the hostility. So here's what I think Paul is saying. As long as the Old Testament law, and he defines it here more specifically, he says, the law understood as commandments expressed in ordinances. I think that's important. Commandments expressed in ordinances. As long as that was the foundation of how people are reconciled to God, the Gentiles are going to be on the outside. They don't even have the law. And the Jews themselves are going to be lost because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Romans 3.20. So Paul says, Christ died to put the path of reconciliation with God on a new footing, a different footing than law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Verse 15, he abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Verse 16, he reconciled us both to God in one body through the cross. So the cross is the key to the removal of the old foundation that kept people apart, and it is the new foundation that inevitably brings people together. Christ, in dying for us, covered all our sins, and he provided all our righteousness 
so that as we move through him to God, God is no longer our judge, no longer our enemy. He is our father, and a family is created. And that's the only way anybody gets right with God. The only way anybody has God as their father is to come to him through the blood, through Jesus, sins forgiven, righteousness provided. And since there's only one way there, everybody has to go that way. You see the implication? From there, you have to go that way, and you have to go that way, and you have to go that way, and every ethnic group on the planet has to go that way. And if they don't want to go together, they don't go. This is why it's so scary that there's been so much racism in the so-called Christian church historically. It's terrifying to me to think about. I grew up in it, tasted it, lived with it, was it. The blood of Jesus is the only way that we sinners from every ethnic group on the planet can come to God and find him as our father, find him forgiving us, cleansing us, and therefore one new man is created in the reconciling work of Christ on the cross. Peace is created in the reconciling work of Christ on the cross. So here's my conclusion from that brief overview of the text. God is calling all people and all peoples to move from alienated bloodlines of race and ethnicity into one bloodline of Jesus Christ. I've been preaching on Martin Luther King weekend concerning the crisis of race, ethnicity, for about 16 years. I don't think we've missed a year in that time. And after all those years, last year, I, I gathered everything I had learned, which isn't everything, and, and put it in this. And the reason I named the sermon after this and the reason I'm holding it up so you can look at it is frankly because as your pastor, I want you to read it. I'm just unashamed in wanting you to know my story with all of its sin and hope and the biblical foundations that we're able to do such a thing. And we've, we've made it available in, in different ways. If you, don't, if, you don't, if you can't afford the $8 we're charging for this at, at, at the bookstore after these services on every campus, and if you get two, uh, every one of them is $5, because we just want you to give them out, we'll just give it to you uh, if you call the number at Desiring God with this, whatever you can afford price, you say, here's, here's my situation, I can't afford $8, let's give it to you. Or you can go to the website and just download it. It's, it's there in a PDF, and you can just download it and read it. And it's, I'm going to refer to chapter 6, and I'd love it if you just go there and download chapter 6 and read it. If you're not a book reader and you can read 20 pages instead of 300 pages, then that would be 
that would be great. But this is, this is one of the most personal things I've ever, maybe the most personal thing I've ever put on paper. And uh, that's why it feels pastorally right for me to say to you, uh, of, of the things I've written, I'd like my people to know me through this and the grace of God that was shown. So you can go to the, right through that way to the store and see what, what they're doing down there afterwards. I, I want us all to have resources. I'm not interested just in me or you finding new possibilities of racial and ethnic peace and enjoyment, but us becoming agents of reconciliation. That is, we, we take steps in the world and in our workplaces, in our schools, toward the kind of thing I'm talking about here. Historically, and in the present day, the horrors of racial and ethnic hatred are indescribable. I want you to realize I'm not just thinking about any one particular American problem here. We have our problems, but this is a global and historical thing. Ever since the fall of man, there has been racial strife. There will be racial strife till Jesus comes as long as people are fallen and it is not to be named among the people of God. It is not to be done. All over the world through history, the slaughter of human life because of ethnic and tribal and racial animosities is beyond imagination. If you could imagine it in vivid color all at once, you would not be able to bear it. From the Armenian genocide in Turkey in 1915, with a million people slaughtered, to the Holocaust that most of you know, I hope, in Germany, to the, to the Soviet gulag, which was probably 10 times worse than the Holocaust in terms of numbers, to the massacres of Rwanda in 1994, both Hutu and Tutsi claiming Christian connections. To the Japanese slaughter of six million Chinese and Indonesians and Koreans and Filipinos and Indochinese, the litany of ethnic hatred goes on and on and on into our present day. Last October, you remember Danny Chen? Asian-American Marine serving in Afghanistan, shot himself, leaving a trail of evidences of how he had been so harassed for his race by his comrades in arms that he couldn't take it anymore. I'll say something to young people. I've talked with some 20-somethings recently who've told me, you really need to stress to our generation that this is still an issue because they don't think it is. They think that's your issue, 60-somethings in the civil rights movement, still reliving your, your guilt and wake up. Wake up, millennials. Post-civil rights Americans need to just be aware of one sentence. New laws don't make new hearts.
we're dealing with an issue that is vastly greater than the racial situation in America, and yet we also need to be aware that the racial situation in America is dramatically changing. So test yourself how you respond to these facts. I'll just give you a few. Minorities make up roughly, and, and probably that word will become anachronistic pretty soon. Minorities make up roughly one-third of the U.S. population. That 30% is expected to be 50% by 2042. By 2023, that's 11 years away, uh, minorities will com of children will comprise 50%. Half, a, half the children in America, in 11 years, half the children in America will be people of color. Um, John Mayer keeps tabs on the racial and ethnic and religious situation in, in the cities here, the Twin Cities. Uh, the Twin Cities Hispanic population more than doubled between 1990 and 2000. We were the eighth fastest growing Hispanic city in the United States during the 90s. The light rail system is in how many languages? Four. What are they? English, Spanish, Hmong, and Somali. Who would have thought? The Twin Cities has the largest Hmong, Oromo, Liberian, Karen, Anuak, Somali populations in the United States and is home to the second largest Tibetan population in the country. My question is, how do you feel about that? How do you feel about it? Does it feel threatening or exciting? Do you feel possessive of culture and place? Or do you feel like God might be at work here doing amazing kingdom possibilities? Which do you feel? Who are you? What governs you? What's at the root of your being? Do you feel resentful that the old earthly stabilities are being shaken up? Which is another way of saying, where is your stability? We have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And it isn't our culture. It isn't America. It isn't white. Or whatever your ethnicity is where you feel secure. It isn't that. It's God. It's the gospel. Unshakable through every change. And every change guided by a sovereign hand toward a glorious gospel end if we would be alert and ready to move. Oh, how I long for Bethlehem to be a people who love Christ-exalting diversity. Who love Christ-exalting diversity. I want you to be that. I want you to be known that way. And the reason I want you to be known that way is not because diversity is a politically correct Christian virtue, which it happens to be in our day. That's quite incidental. 
There are virtues that the world likes Christians to talk about. This is one of them. Trafficking is another one. There are a few that are politically acceptable. Abortion's not. We go there next week. The world doesn't want to hear us talk about that. We're talking about it. So this is not because it's a, a cool, in, hip, social issue. It's because the one we love most died to make it happen. It's not a social issue, it's a blood issue. You were ransomed, and by your blood, you, you, by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. He died for that. And we will be indifferent to it for fear of being thought trendy. There are obstacles in the way. This is what chapter 6 is about, and I'm going to end with this and, and just talk about the gospel in relationship to these obstacles. The gospel we just saw in Ephesians 2. In my experience over the years of just trying, I don't set myself up as a model here at all. I'm just trying, okay? In trying to nudge a church, nudge a family, nudge a people, nudge anybody will let me get near them and nudge toward Christ-exalting diversity and Christ-exalting ethnic harmony. What I've learned in that two-decade effort is there are two kinds of obstacles. These may sound very similar to you, but I feel them in my gut differently. One is obstacles to just enjoying racial diversity. You're not there yet. You're not the kind of person who even wants it. And the obstacles between you and even wanting to know somebody different from you, caring, delighting in, enjoying being at home with people different from you, obstacles there, those aren't the obstacles I'm talking about right now. I'm talking about those of you who are already at that point, you, you enjoy people of different kinds, you feel fairly at home, you delight to make new, new friends, you're not offended at, at any kind of integration at school or at church or at work, you love it, you want to make it happen, but when you set out to try to advance that cause a little bit, you get smacked down. Those are the obstacles I'm talking about, which is why so many pastors and leaders and people don't do anything to advance it. It's just too costly. There are obstacles. Big obstacles of that first kind, but the second kind, you take it on and say, I'm going to just do, do a little something. Do a little something in my neighborhood. Do a little something at my kid's school. Do a little something at my workplace. Just do a little something to, to help us go forward with Christ-exalting racial and ethnic diversity and harmony. You try that. See what happens. And, and, and people quit. And as much as it lay within me, 15, 16, 17 years ago, I said, as many times as I 
make a mistake. As many times as I get legitimately criticized or illegitimately criticized, I'm not going to quit. Just going to keep trying. Take, this is an effort. This is a little piece of the effort. It's a little piece of the effort. Try. We'll try to follow up some things with this. So I'm going to close by naming nine obstacles. I won't talk about all of them in any detail. Nine obstacles on the path of just moving toward Christ-exalting racial harmony, racial diversity. The things that get in the way. This is what I've tried to devote myself to. What, what are the sins that get in the way of even talking about it? M- making any kind of moves for it of any kind, anywhere? What are the kind of sins that stop us and and I, there are more than nine, believe me, but I, I, I tackled nine, and I'll talk about three and name, name, name all of them. Here they are. Satan. Guilt. Pride. Hopelessness. Feelings of inferiority and self-doubt. Greed. Hate. Fear. Apathy. Those are the nine. Those are just rising their head up, oh, raising their head up over and over again, stopping people from any kind of action on this. Each of them undermines perseverance. Each of them makes us want to just quit and go home. Take my ball and go home where people like me and are like me. Jesus died so that these obstacles would not win in your life. He died. And that's, that's what I'll close by trying to show. So let's just take the first three. Satan. Satan hates Christ-exalting racial harmony. He is a liar, and he is a murderer, and he is a relationship ruiner. And he is stronger than you are. But the gospel is stronger than he is. 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. How did he do that? By bearing our sin in his body so that, quote, this is Hebrews 2, 14, through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So the cross and the blood shed for sinners is the decisive means by which Satan is undone in his efforts to block racial harmony. The gospel is the key to defeat the work of the devil. Another key text, Colossians 2.15. Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in him. He stripped Satan of his decisive weapon, which was the ability to accuse me and you of unforgiven sin. He can't do that anymore. Our sin is forgiven, and he has no condemnation. 
Satan is a great foe yet, but he's a defeated foe. And the gospel, believing it, resting in it, applying it. They conquered Satan by the word of their testimony and by the blood of the Lamb. Revelation 6. By the blood of the Lamb, they conquered him. That's the gospel. So, in the power of the gospel, we move forward, and if you sense Satan rising up against you in this effort, you defeat him. You defeat him with the gospel. Guilt. Guilt is a huge player in the way blacks and whites in America navigate the waters of racial relations. It is deadly when it is denied. It is deadly when it is wallowed in. And it is deadly when it is exploited by those who want people to wallow in it. There's no deliverance. There's no relief. There's no healing in dealing with guilt those ways. Denial, wallow, exploit, none. Denial drives it below the surface where it creates endless illusions and self-justifications. Wallowing in it produces a phony humility, obsequiousness, you know that word? Maybe not. I'm always ready to please you. I, I can't do anything right. Whatever you say, I must be the one who's wrong all the time. Wallowing. Moral cowardice. Exploiting it gives a false sense of power that turns out to be a weapon of weakness. This is deadly in America right now. There is no way forward without the gospel. You read the books on this issue and they have no answer. The diagnoses are amazing. Read them. Christ died to take away guilt you. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. You don't have to bear them anymore. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Here's my, my exulting rhetorical question. Who can begin to calculate the effect of white and black from all political persuasions and parties suddenly delivered from the crushing burden of guilt. No more denial, no more wallowing, no more exploiting. Standing together, you're forgiven, I'm forgiven, we're operating on a new level, we're not manipulating this. 
You're not cowering in it. I'm not exploiting it. We're on a new playing field here. Forgiveness. That's the gospel. What an imaginable, unimaginable transformation would come. It is incalculable what personal and relational dynamics would be in all our racial relations in America if we were set free with overflowing joy and gratitude that our guilt, your guilt and my guilt, has been taken away. And we operate on that basis. I'm not viewing you as guilty so that I exploit you. And you're not viewing me as guilty. I'm not viewing me as guilty so that I wallow. Pride, one more. God hates pride. This is touchy, isn't it? You say you're proud of your kids and racists say they're proud of their race. God hates pride. The Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low, and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Pride is a subtle chameleon. Crawls on one rock, looks blue. Crawls on another rock, looks green. It tries to look cool in order to intimidate others. It looks meek and retiring for fear of offending others because we don't want to be disapproved of. It can look strong or it can look weak. In either case, it is consumed with self. And what a select group of others are going to think about myself. Racial tensions are rife with pride. The pride of white supremacy, the pride of black power, the pride of intellectual analysis and the pride of anti-intellectual scorn, the pride of loud verbal attack, and the pride of despising silence, the pride that feels secure, and the pride that masks fear. Where pride holds sway, there's just no hope for the kind of listening, patience, understanding, openness to correction that must mark mature racial relations. No chance. Pride is a great killer in this area. The gospel of Jesus breaks the back of human pride. By grace are you saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. 
The gospel is designed to sever the root of human boasting. That's the way he did it. And that's why the gospel is the way forward in racial talk, racial action. Because if we operate on two mutual prides, I'm proud, you're proud, everybody's proud, 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 nothing comes. In the end of the day, we're at home with our kind, feeling proud. That's not the way of the gospel. Salvation is by grace, through faith, to end pride. The cross of Christ is the key to killing pride. We may not be very good at it, but we know where the key is. I imagine, and I ask you to imagine, what race relations and racial controversies would look like if all the participants were dead to pride through Jesus and deeply humble before God and each other. Let me just name the, the remaining six in a sentence of gospel application for each one. Hopelessness. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We can be a hopeful people no matter what. Feelings of inferiority and self-doubt. See what kind of love the Father has shown to us that we should be called the children of Do you know who you are, Christian? Child of Creator. Inheriting everything. Day after tomorrow. Greed. I count everything as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. If I knew him through the gospel, then I don't, I don't have to manipulate for any kind of worldly advantage here. Hate. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Your being forgiven is the end of hate. Else you need to read the parable in Matthew 18 where being forgiven by the king, he wrings the neck of his fellow servant and goes to hell. The mark of being forgiven is to forgive, not hate. Fear, you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You have received the spirit of sonship. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. We're not slaves anymore. We don't have the spirit of fear on us anymore. We have the spirit of sonship and hope and confidence and humility. 
not fear. You don't have to walk into any conversation being afraid. You're a child of God. You have the spirit of adoption in you. And finally, apathy. Christ gave himself for us to purify for himself a people who are zealous for good works. <laughs> he didn't die for you to become lazy, inactive, apathetic. He didn't hang on the cross for you to put your feet up zealous for good works, hungry to make something happen today. I want your name to be hallowed today. I want someone to hear the gospel today. I want somebody to be brought together today. I want to be useful today, Lord. I'm zealous for this. Or are you? Or are you just coasting? Don't coast. Don't coast. I'll read it again. Christ gave himself for us to purify for himself a people who are zealous. We would say in our day, passionate for good works. That's Titus 2.14. So, I'm finished. Close like this. There are obstacles in the way between you and a persevering effort of any kind to help forward Christ-exalting racial and ethnic diversity and harmony. They're obstacles. And my contention is the gospel is the only answer for getting over those obstacles. The church is not called mainly to be a political organization. It's called to give the answer. We have the answer and the answer is Christ crucified, risen, reigning, pouring out his spirit, triumphing over all nine of those obstacles. Therefore, it ought to be the case that the church is this and then spreads this in the world. Or to say it where we began, my prayer is, not the book, but the reality, we are called by the gospel, to move from bloodlines of every kind all over the world, all of them created by God, to the bloodline. Jesus, let's pray. Father in heaven, I have now a acted. And I pray that you act. And I thank you for the truth of the gospel. Thank you for Jesus. I thank you for the cross. I thank you for the blood. I thank you for the Holy Spirit that draws us to him and opens our eyes to him. And I ask, oh God, that South Campus, North Campus, downtown, there would be a moving of the Holy Spirit, drawing people out of darkness into light, opening the eyes of the blind to see the glory of Jesus Christ who came into the world to purchase Christ-exalting racial diversity. And I ask this in Jesus' name.
Amen.